Okay, so my hope today is to finish wine. Mm, fingers crossed. Now, I looked at my notes again this morning, and I thought, maybe not. But I'm hoping that we can get at least close to being mostly done with wine. It might be next Sunday, too. That's okay as well. But we'll kind of continue through that. So uh, let's just do a quick review of a couple of things that we talked about. Um, so is wine prohibited? Is alcoholic beverage prohibited by the Scriptures? No, it's not prohibited. Uh, why do people say that it is? Because they have a personal problem with it, right? Um, every time that I talk to somebody about kind of their experience and the reason that they are uh, a teetotaler, teetotaler is a, an expression about people who don't drink any alcohol at all. Um, tea, not they only drink tea. Ha <laughs> ha Get it? Southern? Okay. All right. This is a joke. Um, anyway, so those folks, well, most of the time it's attached to like a personal story of addiction or abuse or something like that in their families, but it's not a biblical precedent right? It's not a biblical precedent. So it's not okay to um, add to the law of God. What happens when you add to the law of God? You get cursed, right? That's just how it goes. And so we don't want to add to the law of God. Now, is there special provision for people who are actually fighting addiction? Absolutely there is. Like if, if you're somebody who has no self-control around alcohol and you need to, to deal with that and build your personal discipline, then there is, I would say, a, a reason for a, a season of abstinence from that. I think that would be good and probably helpful for you as you build your self-control. But a lifetime of abstinence, I don't think is Christian, because that implies that you're there forever, you can never grow, you can never mature, you can never um, advance in your in your growth and in your maturity. I, I don't think that that's a, a biblical understanding of what sanctification is, right? Biblical understanding of sanctification is that, hey, you continue on a trajectory over your life, and wine is a gift from God, and we can enjoy it as his faithful people and uh, enjoy it with uh, provisions. Okay, now, so the abolitionist movement is sinful. Does anybody pop quiz? Where did it come from? Anybody remember where prohibition came from? <laughs> the women. That woman you gave me, right? Uh, well, it is true, actually. Uh, 1920s, feminism, uh, the women's suffrage movement, it's rolling along with... In fact, you can actually find old posters. If you want to go dig around in the old prohibition movement campaigns, there's old posters of women, um, like photographs of women that are they're holding up signs that say things like, if alcohol touches his lips, his lips shan't touch mine. You know, it says things like that. It was a it's a big part of the feminist movement at the time. Um, that was the idea of prohibition. But what did prohibition actually create? What's that? Bootleggers, which in turn created the... Well, NASCAR. <laughs> it did create NASCAR. That is a fun truth. But it, it didn't necessarily create the mob, but it definitely made the mob what it is today. Uh, it gave opportunity for them to create speakeasies and all kinds of things in these major cities and, and get power, money, influence, all that stuff really fast. And because, again, if you add to the law of God, what happens? You get cursed. God curses those who add to his law. Now, um, it, what is the sinful? So use is not sinful, but what is sinful whenever it comes turns to alcohol? Abuse, right? Abuse is sinful. And that goes with anything. Any good gift that the Lord has given you, you can abuse it, right? That's just how it works. And so anytime that we're dealing with abuse, we don't want to do that. What's the line? Where's the line you don't want to cross? Say that again. 
you kind of had to figure it out for yourself. Like if you're, I don't know, a 95-pound woman that hasn't eaten in three days, you know, one beer is probably too much for you. That's just the way it is. Some people have certain reactions where it, it's too far. But the, the overall line is drunk. Drunk is sin, okay? And how do we define drunkenness? How does the Bible define drunkenness? Naked man? Not, I don't... Th- I don't, th- well, I mean, if we're waiting until somebody takes their pants off to measure, I, we've gone too far. Like, we got, we got, is he drunk yet? Nope, pants are still on. <laughs> we need, we're never metric to that. Uh, but it is, well, okay, so don't be drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. And one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is self-control, Right? Okay, so if you're losing control of yourself, you've probably gone too far. Y'all, are y'all following with me here? That's, that's the line that we have to understand. And if you sin, what do you do? You confess and you repent and you stop it, right? And if you see your brother sin, what do you do? You tell him to stop it. Be like, hey, buddy, this is too much. Did you guys know that historically um, this is the reason that bartenders exist? Did you know this? In history, a bartender exists to close the bar for you, right? That, that's what their job was. They, would, they tended bar not necessarily to like fight people or like be like, oh, make as much money as they possibly can, which is why people tend bar today. They want to sell you drinks and get, the, get their tips as high as they possibly can. But, but back in the gap, the original point of a bartender was to say, hey, buddy, you're done. Hey, this is, you're done. If you go back to the old English public houses, the pubs, right, that was the job of the guy who kept the bar. He would say, hey, hey, man, this, you've, had, you've had three. I think you should slow it down. You seem to be kind of like, it was, it was almost like a pastoral role that they had. They kind of helped people go along. So good guiding principles that we, as God's people, should derive from that, especially as somebody who's trying to incorporate wine into our celebrations, because that's what the Bible does. Bible incorporates wine and alcohol and strong drink uh, into their celebrations. We, as God's people, should have a system like that in place when we celebrate. Uh, some type, someone who is the, the bartender. Do you get what I'm saying? The, the person who's willing to be like, hey, 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 that's enough. Let's shut this down. And something along the lines of um, something along the lines of just saying something like reminding everybody at the beginning of the party, hey guys, don't forget. Uh, Use is not sinful. Abuse is sinful. Marry is fine. Drunk is not. And then look around and be like, everybody, amen? Everybody's like, amen. Like that, <laughs> keep your pants on. That's right. Like that would be a perfectly fine thing to do. If you're having a great big party and you have a ton of people at your house and you don't necessarily know everybody, it probably would be a good idea for you to have somebody who actually tends bar. You know what I mean? Like somebody who's managing and can say, hey, this is seven. You're, you're done, buddy. You're done. You need, to, you need to slow down here. Do y'all follow with me what I'm saying here? This is, just, this is just good hospitality. Because if you're caring for your guests that are at the event with you, um, you're also caring for the person who might be uh, not able to control themselves as much. This is the way good Christians' communities work and grow and thrive and all this stuff. So we want to be able to incorporate those things with ourselves as well. Does that make sense, you guys? So as we're growing in maturity in this space, some type of tending of bar is probably an important piece for us to add to our celebrations. Somebody who's like helping oversee and then go from there. But, you know, we're young and we're dealing with 
however many years of prohibition altogether, and we're trying to learn and figure things out along the way. But I think we're, we're getting better. <clears throat> All right. Here's the big question. Is a Christian required to alter his behavior on behalf, don't answer this yet, on behalf of someone else that would be considered the weaker brother, okay? That's, that's the big question. Is a Christian, don't, now don't answer this because I think we've got a, a lot of us who have the wrong answer here, so don't, don't say it out loud because I want to take you through some stuff and I think we'll get there in a little bit. But the big question that really I think has been knocking on the back of everybody's brain since we started this topic is, is a Christian required to change the way that they act for the weaker brother? Are, are they required to, to do things? That's Romans 14. Y'all can go ahead and turn there. We're going to read through the bulk of Romans 14 together this morning and try to get down to the bottom of it. Romans 14 is really important. Um, 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, I don't think it's just chapter 8, though. I think there's a couple of chapters there, but it starts in chapter 8. Also kind of helps flesh this out a little bit, but uh, Roman, uh, 1 Corinthians 8 is more about meat sacrificed to idols than it is about um, people who believe that there's a conscience issue here, although both things are about that to a degree. <clears throat> but let's start looking at Romans 14, and we're going to start in verse 1. And we're just going to kind of read through it and chat through it as we go. Romans chapter 14, starting at verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinion. So first off, notice the word that's used. What's the word that's used to describe somebody like this? Weak. It's somebody, it's somebody who's weak is not strong. Uh, it's immature is what it is. Somebody who's not grown up yet. And what should be our disposition to, to, a, to somebody who is the, air quotes, weaker brother? According to verse 1, what do we do? We welcome them in, right? Somebody who's a... Man, if we said to everybody who wanted to come to our church, sorry, you have to be this tall to ride, that would be a terrible thing. The idea is that we want to bring them in. We want to train them in righteousness. We want to help them grow according to the Lord. So we, our, our initial motion towards the weaker brother is not to be one of the people who's like eye-rolling, oh gosh, it's one of these people. They just don't get it, right? That's a problem. Our initial disposition towards the weaker brother is to bring them in. Scoop them up. Bring, bring them to your house. Have dinner with them. Invite them over. You know, whatever. But, but keep in mind that they are the weaker brother. And Paul knows what's the disposition of the weaker brother. You'll see it there in verse 1. Do you know what it is? What's their, what's their disposition? To fight. They're cage stagers. You know, like, like they just started to understand who Jesus is. They just started to understand what the church really is. They just started to get some clues, but they're still weaker brothers. They're immature, and they're prone to, to quarrel. They're prone to argue. They're prone to be a strife-stirrer, right? We were talking about that the other day. They're, they're, they're given over to that. There's, I wish, one of the things that we really should get stronger with is when we, get our, when we get our young bucks or like our new believers in, we just bring them in and we sit them down next to us and just pat them on the back and say, I'm proud of you. You're doing a great job. Now be quiet for about two years, okay? And just <laughs> pat them right there and be like, you're going to make it Okay. That would have been so helpful for me <laughs> if somebody would have just came along and been like, I'm proud of you, you're great, I'm glad you're following Jesus, now shut up for like 24 months, and then you can talk again. Just listen. Just listen and learn and grow, and, and we're going to help you out along the way. Because as new Christians always are, they're prone to fight. Now, if you go to Galatians chapter 4, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it for you. This will help flesh this out a little bit more. Formerly, 
This, this is verse 8, Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Now, the context of all of this is asceticism. Do y'all remember what that is? What's the, what's the asceticism? Anybody want to take a swing at it? Yeah, it's, it's related a little bit to Gnosticism. It's this idea of, of, of denial of self that will get me closer to God. It's this idea that there are some things on this earth. I'm, I'm not going to get married. I'm, I'm going to take a vow of poverty. I'm going to... Where do we see a lot of these things play out in our culture? Say that again. In what? Yeah, Roman Catholics. Like, we still see a lot of asceticism playing out a lot, and it's based on Gnostic principles. It's based on physical is evil, and there's a separation and a distinction between the physical and the spiritual. That's Gnosticism, right? But Christians know what? Who made the world? God did. And if you're going to our Wednesday night Bible study, what did God say whenever he finished making the world? It was very good. He, he looked back on day six. Remember, that was this past week. He looked back on day six, and he's like, it's very good. It's very, everything here is very good. So the idea of Gnosticism, the idea that the physical is, is bad, but the spiritual is good, that's a problem, and that's what asceticism roots itself in, okay? Now, Paul, if you look at Galatians, if you look at 1 Corinthians, if you look at Romans, the thing that Paul's always fighting with is Jewish asceticism, okay? It's a little bit different than the Roman Catholic asceticism that we deal with today. Does anybody know specifically what aspects of the Jewish asceticism that Paul is dealing with? What's that? Work? Pork. Pork. <laughs> okay. Well, that is part of it. That, that was more Peter's fight than Paul's. But yes, you're right. But there's other pieces to it too. Can you remember? What's the big theme of Galatians? What's happening throughout Galatians? Circumcision. Circumcision. Yes, very good. The Jewish asceticism, the, uh, the Judaizers, also known as them, the Jewish asceticists, that's hard for me to say, asceticists, Asceticists. It's hard for me to say. The Jewish Judaizers, asceticists, uh, they're going around telling people you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. You can't be saved unless you're doing this extra law keeping. And they were also having some problems with folks going around. And you remember we talked about last week the Nazarite vows? Okay? And they were how they, Nazarite vow was a temporary thing that happened. There was one guy who was supposed to have it for his whole life. Who was it? Samson was the guy, right? But only one guy, okay? The rest of them, took, they would take Nazarite vows temporarily, and that was to abstain from alcohol, but that was kind of bleeding into the Jewish culture as well. They were dealing with it over by and large. Buddy? John the Baptist? John the Baptist? I think he did one for a period. I don't think he was a Nazarite through and through. John the Baptist was... Hmm. Let me go read about that some more. Uh, in my understanding, Samson's the only one who had a lifelong one, um, but I need to double down and read on that some more. That's a good thought, though. I do remember something about him having the vow, but I don't remember the duration or the context. I'd have to check that out again. But anyway, Paul's fighting with asceticists who are actually threatening the gospel. Do you remember that? Because what's the point of Galatians? If you try to do this law-keeping in order to be saved, you're not saved at all because you think law-keeping is what saves you. It's the same principle here. 
they're dealing with the, uh, the meat consumption, the alcohol issues, all those different pieces. In Romans, he's not necessarily saying, if you go to Romans 14, this passage we're reading right now, he's not necessarily saying that it's a direct threat to the gospel, but it is causing people to get mixed up. It is causing some issues, and so Paul has to, to lay this down. Now, <clears throat> we have to draw a distinction here as we're thinking about people who are, are uh, coming to our churches. There's a difference between the weaker brother, the person who's just immature and confused and they don't know what they don't know, and there's a difference between the Judaizer, the Jewish, uh, the Pharisee, the aestheticist who's like rooted, okay? There's, there's a difference between somebody who's, who doesn't really know, who doesn't have a clue, and is trying to learn and grow, and, and somebody who says, no, this is what's true, and you are all in sin, and you need to stop it, right? There's a big difference between those two pieces. And so as we are applying this principle of Romans 14, you have to remember who your audience is. So if, if you've got Judaizers coming in, Okay, if you've got Judaizers coming in, if you've got if you've got Pharisees, if you've got the aestheticists coming in, and they're saying, "Hey, you bunch of drinking buffoons, this is sinful, and you need to stop it." What do we do to those people? We throw them off a bridge. No, what what do we do to those folks? Well, first off, we rebuke them, right? But what did Jesus do to folks like that? Jesus would actually break their laws intentionally, their laws, their fake extra made-up laws. Jesus would break their fake extra laws intentionally and publicly. That's what he did. He would see that they were wired with this weird, like, pharisaical, sinful association with certain extra laws, and Jesus was like, oh yeah, watch this. That's the point in, if you go to Matthew chapter 15, verse 2, don't go there, just write it down, maybe. You can look at it later. Whenever Jesus has asked the question, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. What's the tradition of the elders? Is that God's law? No, that's extra laws. That's extra rules that they wrote later on. To which Jesus was like, no, he ain't doing that. That's not God's law. And he would have them publicly in such a way that everybody could see it, not keep the traditions of the elders. See, that's the way, this is why whenever I go to a restaurant for lunch on Sunday, I order an extra large blue moon. Have y'all ever been to Pedro's with me? If you have, you see them, they sit it down right there. And I sit down at the table and maybe I finish it, maybe I don't, you know, I don't know. There's, but the point is to say, no, 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 we are not given an inch to the extra biblical fake law, extra law keeping folks. We're not letting them have an itch. We're Christians, we enjoy our liberties, and I violate your law, your extra law publicly. Do you understand? Lauren? Is there a type of self-denial that is biblical and good and works towards the gospel working in your heart? The temporary vows, like with the Nazarites? And then you also see the Well, yeah, so, yes, but they're all, my point is that they're all temporary. Do you get what I'm saying? So, like, um, t- fasts are always temporary in the Scripture. Um, the denial of sex between a married couple, Paul says, you can do that to dedicate yourselves to prayer, but, yo, don't do that long. <laughs> don't do that long. 
Um, the same thing applies in the Nazarite vow. Hey, this is the way that it works. It's a temporary. Samson was the exception, and potentially John the Baptist. Um, but those were the exceptions to the rule, not the rule. Are you all following with me here? So there is a type, yeah, there is a type of self-denial, but it's always a temporary seasonal thing. It's never meant to be long-term, and it's definitely not lifelong. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. Do you all have any other questions? That was a good question. I like that. So Matthew chapter 15, verse 2, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? The tradition of the elders that was being broken at the time was a clear Jesus saying, no, I'm not holding on to your extra laws and I violate them publicly. This is how we are going to roll. So the weak people though, they're weak. They don't know and they don't know what they don't know and they need somebody to scoop them up and be like, come on, man, just come listen, come hang out. I'm, I'm going to learn you something for the next little bit. It's going to be okay. You're going you're gonna to get along well. And don't quarrel over those different things. Let's go on to verse 2. I'm not going to make it through this today. All right, verse 2. Here we go. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So the the strong people love the weak by not mocking them, by not, oh, look, those stupid weak people. That's not Christian. We want to be able to kind of love those guys as best we can and welcome them in. But the weak people love the strong by not looking at them and judging them. You see the two things that are playing here? The weak people who think that this thing might be a violation of the law, and the strong people who know that it's not, they have different temptations. The strong people to mock and ridicule, the weak people to judge the people who are strong. Are you all following with me here? They're saying, hey, don't, don't do that. Romans chapter 14, verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, this is Paul kind of continuing to teach the weak brother here. He's saying that the weak don't rebuke the strong Christians for doing what God has obviously approved of them to do, and and the weak aren't to to go around and, and meddle in other people's business. Like, you've got a weak brother who came into the church and then starts handing out pamphlets on why abstinence to alcohol is the only, the only uh, biblical answer, that's not a weak brother anymore. you got a different problem. And you need to tell them, hey, we're glad you're here. You're welcome here, but you have to stop this nonsense because you're wrong. I know you're wrong. You're, you're not convinced, but this thing right here, you need to sit down, chill out, and, and learn and be taught, right? That's the basic principles here. Do you all see what I'm talking about? Have you ever been in a church where that, something like that's happened before? I, I have, <laughs> not necessarily about alcohol, about other things, but people will like come in, they're brand new to the church, and then they start spreading around some crazy teachings. And you, you have to go in and stop those folks. What? Where drums came up? They were like, drums are the devil. Was it a Baptist church? Okay, there it is, yeah. But yeah, I was, uh, in fact, back in the day, Northside, before Northside was Northside, well, it's Lafayette now, wow, so a long time ago, when it was Covenant Baptist, they would have folks come in with literal pamphlets and like hand them out to people, and Brandon had to be like, 
he would go around the pews and take the pamphlets and throw them away and had to figure out who was sending them and who's putting them out. I had to go talk to him about it. And like, it was a thing. But you got to guard against stuff like that. But the basis of Romans 14 really is, is the concept of Christian liberty here, right? Imagine a place where you welcome in the weaker brother and you allow them to live according to their conscience. They can't teach everybody, right? You don't platform them. They don't get to hand out pamphlets, but they're welcome. See, that's the idea of Christian liberty. You can have people like that in your church, and you just got to remind them, be like, hey, you just, you need to listen, and you need to be teachable, and you need to let us bring you along, and you need to recognize that you're weaker here in this area, and if you can get all those boxes checked off and be teachable and ready to be instructed, let's go, baby. We're going to do some stuff together, but that's, that's what Christian liberty is fundamentally. Un- other people... <clears throat> don't have the right to make up rules and give them to you. We're obligated to the Lord to keep his law and go from there. Do you all have questions about that? A lot of people misunderstand the idea of Christian liberty, okay? They think that it means that I can interpret any part of the Bible to mean anything that I want it to mean, and we can just live together in harmony. That's not Christian liberty. The Bible means something, okay? And there is an understood doctrine that you hold to as a body of believers under the supervision of elders, and you, you cling to that, okay? But it does mean that the weaker brothers can come in and be led. It does mean that. Do you all see the distinction here? Christ, Christian liberty is not just anybody can do anything they want all the time as long as they can quote a proof text. Go. I think, I think that it can, provided that they're willing to say something like, I might be wrong here. Like, if they're, if they're putting their foot down... Like everyone. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, that's totally fine. Yeah, um, as, but, you know, I remember I, I flew my flag early. This needs to be wine. And so as long as they agree that they won't abstain from the Lord's Supper, <laughs> you know, then I, I think we're good. But I know people who, um, in fact, there's a great book oh, whose name I can't remember, but it's called God Gave Wine. You should buy it and read it. It's a phenomenal argument, and it's written by a guy who doesn't even drink. He's like, I don't drink because I don't like it. Um, but he makes all the arguments for, you know, God being the one who gave wine. It's a good gift from him, all those things. And he even says, like, you can choose... And I think this is kind of what you're getting at. You can elect to not participate just because you don't want to, but don't say, I elect to not participate because it's sinful. You know, that's, that's the different piece, okay? Uh, and I would also add to that, I don't know if he says this in his book or not, but I would also add to that, and don't neglect the Lord's Supper because that's a big deal. And Jesus specifically ordained that it would be wine. And he does Oh no, my batteries are dead. Boom. All right, the light is on, and it's staying on, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, we got it going. Um, Let's keep going, unless y'all have any other questions. So Christian liberty, important principle for us to understand. But Christian liberty does not mean that somebody can step in and be in charge, okay? Um, There's a body of elders they submit to. Everybody's following together, and they're walking in a particular direction. All right, let's go on, verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, While another esteems all days alike, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor to the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, 
and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to, his, for to this end, excuse me, Christ died and lived again, that he might be, excuse me, Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The point is that Jesus is Lord. And nobody gets to set up extra rules to make them make other people follow Jesus in a specific way. And this is this is a big deal, honestly, in the American church as a as a whole. We've become the church that's, that divides, the church that separates, where Paul clearly makes provision for us to be a body of people together, following the Lord, welcoming one another in fellowship. But we divide over, I mean, good grief, we've got folks who divide over carpet colors and all kinds of silly things like that. We're rather called by God to come together, to welcome one another and to be a part of fellowship with one another and grow over time. <clears throat> so, Let's move on. Oh, sorry, do you all have questions? Because I'm about to get to the fun part. Go to verse 13. What's the fun part? Pastor Stewart, what's the fun part? It's the stumbling block. Now, this is the part where I think many of us have a wrong understanding of what's going on here, okay? And so we got to talk about what the word stumbling block actually means, and we're going to talk about how to do this properly. So therefore, let none of us, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. For those of you who are, are Greek study folks, or you got blue letter Bible or something fun like that, you can double tap that word stumbling block, and it's proskama. See, a stumbling block is something that leads someone else into sin or into their own destruction. That's what a stumbling, a proskama is, a stumbling block. It's not something that might trip somebody up at one point or another. It's something that's going to guide them, direct them, push them down to death. To put a stumbling block in front of somebody is to, is to lead them, guide them, direct them into sin. Okay, are y'all following with me here? It's, it's not just a, whoops, oh, accident, oh no! If we were going to try to create an environment in which no one was ever tempted to sin, no matter what we did in all of worship, we could never hang out. Like, because that's what sin is, by and large. It's taking what God has given us and then turning it into God. So there are people who come to church on Sunday who treat the, the corporate worship gathering as a type of idol, as a type of event. And they're, they're not actually worshiping the true God. They're worshiping the way the music makes them feel. Or they're worshiping the fact that I went to church another Sunday, therefore now I'm righteous. And if that means just don't give people an occasion to sin, don't give them an opportunity to sin, if that's what that means, that means we don't have church anymore. You get it? Like that, that's not what it means. It means you're guiding them, you're bringing them, you're directing them into sinful behavior. That's what a stumbling block is. Do y'all follow with me here? Don't, don't think that when you see that phrase, it means don't give anybody an opportunity to ever sin in their lives because you carry sin with you in your heart, okay? And so do they. 
And it's not going to be possible for you to set up a sin-proof environment. And this is great application for your kids as well. For those of you that are raising little kids, it is impossible for you to give your children a sin-proof environment, right? It's, it's a, <laughs> amen. She's like, I, I got a lot of them. <laughs> I know about this. Listen, it is important for you, especially as a parent, to be increasingly kind of removing your hands from your children as they grow old older so that they can have more freedom and therefore have more opportunities to, to screw it up while they're with you. You see the difference there? While they're in your house. If you spend 18 years with your kids trying to give them just sin-proof environments, what's going to happen when they move out? They're likely going to fall into the first temptation that crosses their path because they never had to self-govern enough to resist on their own. You following with me here? It's stumbling block does not mean never create an opportunity where anybody could sin. Don't try to create sin-proof environments. That's not stumbling block. Stumbling block means you're intentionally leading somebody in a particular direction. <clears throat> There's also the other word, a, a stumbling block or a hindrance. Hindrance is, you want a fun word? Hindrance is a fun word. Hindrance is scandalon, like scandal, right? Okay, scandalon. Hindrance is this other word. So you got proskama, you got scandalon. Uh, it's something that, that causes someone ruin, causes someone destruction. So don't seduce somebody into breaking God's law, and the strong are not to lead the weak into, or anyone for that matter, into something that is obviously overtly sinful. Okay, we got all those things. Any questions on that? Whew, how much do I have left? I do not have time. Girl! Okay, that's all right. That's all right. We're going to go through. We're just going to keep going, and then I'm going to stop. Verse 14. Let's keep going. I know and I am persuaded that the Lord Jesus, by the Lord Jesus, in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Did you see what he just said right there? He's talking about the, the principle of Christian conscience, which means if you've got a weaker brother and they're convinced in their conscience that alcohol is sinful for them to partake in, but they're following all the rules, they're not trying to lead anybody else down this path, they're not trying to teach, they're not passing out pamphlets, but they're just convinced in their mind. They're like, oh, I can't get over it. I'm not convinced. It would be sinful for you to force them to do it. Okay? That's sinful. For you to be like, bro, you just need to get over yourself. Here's a whatever. That's sinful. Are y'all following with me here? Don't do that. You've got a weaker brother who has a conviction of conscience. You don't keep going after him, but you do teach with the hopes that one day they would be convinced of what the Bible actually says. And then they have freedom of conscience to participate in whatever sense that might actually mean. But the sinful piece is you showing up and saying, I'm going to make you. You're going to get over it. Today you're getting over it, right? Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't lead people that way. It's not going to be helpful to them. You're going to drive them away from the actual gospel, and you're going to cause them to sin. Y'all got questions about that? Don't strong arm folks. It's not going to be helpful for them. Let them follow Jesus. <clears throat> so if someone is weak, then don't push them in a particular direction. Teach them, bring them along, and then go from there. <laughs> Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love, but what you eat, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Don't seduce, don't drag away the weak Christian with your actions or with your words to go against his conscience. You're, you're pushing him. What you're actually going to do is you're going to push him towards a full denial of Jesus. You're going to lead him all the way astray. And you don't want to go there. <clears throat> All right, 
Let's finish this bad boy out. Are we doing it? We're doing it. All right, here we go. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. He's talking about that. That's verse 16 right there. He's making it very clear. Hey, teach properly and make sure that you're teaching properly as you're going throughout the scriptures. Um, Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. That's confirmation of what we just talked about. Don't make the weaker brother do something that their conscience feels condemned against, okay? Teach them, instruct them, but the last thing you want to do is shove their face in it, okay? Don't make them. Don't make them. That's not, that's not for you to do. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now, there's a big caveat here, remember? There's a difference between the Judaizer, the aestheticist, and the weaker brother. You see the difference between those two things? If you got somebody who's... And I have found that there are not a lot of actual weaker brothers, okay? Just in my personal experience, I I think in my years of ministry, maybe I've come across one or two. There's not a lot. The vast majority are... they've, They've fully bought into a false teaching, or they just genuinely don't know that's very rare too. And you want to help and coach and bring them along. But this does not mean that you don't, it doesn't mean for you to totally abstain since there are weaker Christians out there. It means literally when you got them to your house and you know they got a serious problem and their conscience is conflicted, you put the wine away. Do you get what I'm saying? Or you don't even necessarily have to put it away. Be like, hey, I was thinking about having a glass of wine. Is that a problem for you? And if they say no, be like, sweet, bloop because that's not a weaker brother. But if they say, I have a problem with that, and you'd be like, hey, no problem, I got it. Yeah, bloop, we're going to put that away. We know exactly how you feel. That's a very specific application, and it does not mean that you, in all of life, deny everything that you do, because that's a violation of conscience and a violation of Christian liberty there as well. Are you all tracking with me here? But you see how lost we are down here whenever we really get going into this kind of stuff? Like, we have left the Bible, and we left it a long time ago. We're desperately trying to claw our way back to it. But man, it takes a lot, doesn't it? It takes a lot to go back and get all these teachings straight in. All right. <clears throat> Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 22, y'all just listen. I'll read this to you, and then we're going to be done. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. That means in certain contexts, Paul would not eat meat. Why? Because he had a goal. There was people there that he was fighting to win to Jesus. So in our context, in some circumstances, we would say, I'll take a Dr. Pepper, okay? Or whatever. It's the same principle that applies here. We're, we're going after people. But it does not mean in all of your life you deny. And it does not mean that you allow those people platforms to teach or instruct or to lead as though a weaker brother. This is not a call for the weak to be weak forever. And it's definitely not a call for the weak to be the ones who govern the entire church because that would be ridiculous, right? You don't let the the uneducated, unlearned folks be in charge. You can't allow that to happen. And remember that we're talking about weak Christians, not Pharisees. (laughs) What do you do with a Pharisee? Say that again, Z. You rebuke them, but how does Jesus rebuke them? Do you all remember? Jesus rebukes them by violating their extra made-up laws publicly. 
That's how Jesus deals with the Pharisees. And I think that's a great way to deal with them. Hey, you're violating the law of God. Why? Because the Pharisees are trying to force other people to be like them by peer pressure. And all you got to do is stand up and wave your flag of Christian liberty. No, no, I follow Jesus and I believe his words and I violate your fake law publicly. Let's go. That make sense? Y'all have questions? I can't believe we got through this. I am shocked, but I am excited at the same time. No questions? All right, let's pray and we'll be done. Father, thank you so much that you give us your words. Thank you so much that we get to submit to them and follow you. I pray that you'd help us to do so. And Lord, forgive us for the times that we failed you. And thank you that you are a good God who forgives us when we confess our sins and that we may be your free and forgiven people. In Jesus' name, amen. I do want to say one thing real quick before everybody leaves. I do think the Christian concept of a, of a barkeep, right, of a bartender is important, all right? Uh, and so as we are growing in maturity here, uh, in the same way that we fence the table so that we are keeping our brothers from sinning on, on the Lord's Day, in the same, we're not inviting people to come sin, um, I think it would be a good idea to imply, apply that principle somehow in your home for your social gatherings. So whether that means you literally have somebody tending bar at your parties, which might be a thing, um, whether it means you might just make an announcement at the beginning, hey guys, don't forget the law of God, we want to be people who follow Jesus at the very beginning of your party, that might be a thing. I, I don't know exactly. Um, I've been to pastors' houses where they bring only enough beer for literally everybody to have one or two, and then they put it down, and that's all they have for the whole party. I, but I do think that we, we want to be incorporating as God's people some type of, of barkeep to our gatherings. That's a, that's a good Christian principle. We want to shepherd each other well. Um, and what I did at a party we had not too long ago, which I thought was helpful, was just say, hey guys, Mary is permissible, drunk is not. Amen? Amen! And then everybody had a party. So just something along those lines. Does that make sense, you guys? All right, great. Thanks. I'll see you all in a few minutes.